We are continuing in Exodus, and we are continuing this portion of Exodus in which God pours out the plagues on Egypt. And, and as we saw last week with the first of the plagues, uh, these really are capturing a confrontation between the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and, and the Egyptian gods, and, and those gods being embodied in Pharaoh. This is kind of a, the original clash of the, the titans, where God is confronting them, and He's exposing these gods, exposing the, the false claims and promises that they make, uh, that they are not all they're cracked up to be. That, in fact, they, when you follow these gods, it unleashes chaos in our lives. This week, what we're going to see, because every week what we're looking at is really what, what was that, that God that God was addressing, that Yahweh was addressing in Egypt, how does that parallel our lives today and the gods we follow in the modern world? And then how do we respond to it? And this week, we're going to be looking at the God of abundance the God of abundance, that abundance is not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, this hit me last weekend. Uh, I am a father of three children, which means the one thing I never have an abundance of is time to myself. Uh, and usually I'm very depleted of energy. And, and so my life is very scripted out and, and I have many responsibilities throughout my day. But last weekend, my wife took all three children uh, back to see family in California. So I had, what, three days to do whatever I wanted, okay? So I immediately started thinking about all the things that I could do. I had this abundance of time. I had this abundance of, I could sleep. I could, I could entertain myself. I could watch something other than a Pixar movie, right? Like, I could, I could hang out with friends. I could read whatever I want. I could get all the the little projects around the house that I wanted to get done. I could get those done. I could, I could work on some personal projects and things I've been doing. I could work on, on, on work here at the, the, the church and things I've been wanting to work on. I could hang out with individuals. I could, I could really do whatever I want. And so I spent all of this time, the first morning that they were gone, just thinking of all the things that I could do. And I was cycling through all these things, and I was almost kind of overwhelmed by, by all the options that I had. And, and I remember after thinking about all the things, I could entertain myself, I could do these projects, and I like went for like, and I was like, oh, I could go to the gym. So I go to the gym, and then I'm like coming home, and I'm like, oh, I could go to the store. So I go to the store, and I'm just kind of ping-ponging all around town. Like if you'd run into me, I would have just looked like I was aimless and had no idea what I was doing with my life. And, and so then finally comes, I think it was the Friday night, and, and I couldn't decide, what am I going to do? What am I going to hang out with somebody? And then now it's too late to really set anything up. And so then I finally decided, oh, it's, it was NBA All-Star Weekend, which I love basketball. So I was like, I haven't watched anything with the All-Star Weekend in, in years. So I was like, I'm going to watch some stuff. So, so I finally decided, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat whatever I want. So I go to the store, and I, I was going to get, and I was like, no, 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 I'm going to get, I can't remember, that simple whatever brand, the white cheddar popcorn, you know, you go to Sam's Club, and you can buy it by like the bushel, Right. And, and so I go to the store, I'm like, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy that, because that's always my snack. And so I go, and I get into the aisle of all of the, you know, chips, you know that aisle, right? And, and I get there, and I see all the colors, <laughs> all the designs, and I was thinking to myself, you know what? I can, I can, I can have whatever I want. I'm an adult, right? So I, I'm like, I can have chips, 
I could have pretzels. I could have the pretzels with the peanut butter in them. I could, and so I'm walking down, back and forth down this aisle, looking at all of the options. And I'm like, well, this one has, well, what's, what are the ingredients? And, and I'm literally at this point, probably eight to nine minutes into just pacing back and forth down this aisle. Can't decide what I'm going to purchase. Just a simple snack to watch the game when I get home. And as I'm like, kind of, I'm realizing I'm like overwhelmed by this. I'm kind of anxious. Now I'm getting mad at myself because I'm like, just make a, you're an adult, make a decision, right? And then finally, no, no lie, it was like something out of like a Wes Anderson movie, okay? All of a sudden, this, this little old lady has her cart. She comes walking by me up to the exact same popcorn I originally was going to grab. She doesn't even almost look up. She just sees it, knocks it in her cart, and keeps moving on and goes about her life. And then finally, I was like, fine, I get it. I'll just get that popcorn. So I grab the popcorn, and then I, I finally, after what, 15 minutes of deliberating on this decision, finally buy my one bag of popcorn. I get home, and then my Wi-Fi is out, so I can't watch the game. So I end up sitting in bed, feeling all guilty about all the things I hadn't done or accomplished with my day, and I actually end up falling asleep eating popcorn in bed while flipping through pictures on my phone of my family. Okay? So that's how, my, that's how my day ended. So here's the point of it. Here's the point. Here's what I learned. Abundance, unending choice, unending options is actually not all it's cracked up to be. In fact, it could be deeply paralyzing. In fact, it can actually be something that drives us to anxiety. That's actually overwhelming. As we'll see today, that abundance can actually be the very thing that holds us captive. It can be the very thing that burns us out. As God addresses this God today, he's going to address the Egyptian God that promised unending abundance. In our day, we're going to look at in the modern world how this, the form that this has taken on is an ever, an unending, you could say, list of choices. Abundance comes in the, for, in the form of unending choice. And that this is actually holds us captive, it burns us out, it makes us anxious, it overwhelms us. It fills, as we're going to see with these plagues, it actually fills our lives with what we could call irritants. So here's what we're going to look at today. Here's the uh, First, the false god of abundance. What's the claim of this god, and what's the consequence of giving ourselves to it? Then we're going to look at the modern god of abundance. Same thing. What's that similar claim, and what's the consequence of giving ourselves to it? And then third, we're going to look at the countercultural solution. I'm not going to give you a silver bullet. Okay, there, There's no silver bullet for this thing outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we're going to look at what, are, what I would call some silver-plated bullets, some very helpful steps, practical things, and some deeply biblical truths about Christ that help us. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we long to be people who are free. We long to be people who are filled with joy, who are filled with peace. And Lord, in our day, it seems that that is through the path of having unending choice, that everything in life is an open-ended choice where we can design our lives as we please. We can uh, be free of commitment. We can be free of constraints. But Lord, help us to see the beauty and the gift 
of healthy limitations and constraints. Uh, Lord, help us to see the ultimate goal of conformity into Christ's likeness, not whatever we would like, and what a gift that is. And so, Lord, these are, are pervasive things all around us. These are the waters that we swim in. And, Lord, it's hard for us to not just be swept away by this current. And so, Spirit, we need you. Spirit, we need you to reveal where these uh, things have a grip on us and where they're pulling us along, even in some ways just dragging us along. And Spirit, would you give us the wisdom for whatever steps we need to take, but also would you just give us a vision, a clear picture, a clear sight of what the life that you've called us to in Christ, and would that captivate us? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the false god of abundance. Again, we're in Exodus 8. Let's start in verse 1, what we read in the Scripture reading. I'm going to go down through verse 15 here. This is the plague of frogs. The plague of frogs. Then the Lord said to Moses, by the way, this is the second of the plagues. Last week we saw the Nile turning to blood. So go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Now, let me frame this again. The Lord has called Pharaoh to free his people, what? To serve him, to go out into the desert, to worship him. And every generation, God is seeking to liberate humanity so they would know him, so they would, they would give their lives to him, that they would follow him, that they would find joy and peace in him. In every generation, there are Pharaohs who strive to keep humanity from ever finding that kind of freedom. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Interesting, right? Why frogs? The Nile shall uh, swarm uh, with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowl. So frogs, frogs everywhere. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Remember last week we saw that first sign before the plagues that serves as a template for all the plagues when God has Aaron throw down his staff in front of Pharaoh, and it turns into a serpent, which is actually a pronouncement against Pharaoh, who had serpent emblems on his crown for upper and lower Egypt, his kingdom. And it was a statement Then, when the magicians threw down their staves, they became serpents as well. And then Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. It was a statement when Pharaoh tries to claim, no, 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 I'm God, of God saying, no, 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 I'm the supreme God. So every time when a plague comes, he reenacts that same template with the staff to say, remember the key principle that's going on here, which is I am God, even where you claim to be, you are not. Every time that staff is held up. So Aaron, verse 6, stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up out of the land of Egypt, or on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the people to take away the frogs from me, from my people. 
And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and from your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. (laughs) That would stink. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So what's happening here? Again, review, and I'm just repeating a few key things that frame these plagues, because I know last week was was a holiday weekend, so some of you were gone. But how do we understand the ten plagues? The first thing that you need to understand that we looked at last week is that the plagues confront the false claim of an Egyptian god. Every single plague is going to confront and expose a false claim of an Egyptian god from that time. We we see throughout uh, places like in Numbers and whatnot, the Old Testament will describe what God was doing as not pouring out the plagues necessarily just on Egypt and on the people, but as a way to expose the false gods of the Egyptians. This is how Scripture understands the plagues. But second, then, it captures the chaotic consequence of following that false god. So also the play captures the chaotic consequence of following that false god. In other words, when we follow a false god, it unleashes chaos in our life. And we looked at last week, the, the, the question is, why are there 10 plagues? Random number, right? Well, there are 10 divine decrees in Genesis 1, when God creates. And what is happening, what, uh, what the plagues are doing is undoing that ordered good. God said, it is good, it is good, it is good, as he made his creation. Well, what this is doing is makes, making that good thing into a chaotic thing and a cursed thing. It's revealing how, when you follow false gods, it undoes the very fabric of your life and of creation. So what was this Egyptian god that was being confronted? So in other words, what we're going to get to is what is the false claim, and then what is the consequence? So the false god in this second plague is the god Heket. Most believe it's Heket. The Egyptians, uh, this is from John Curid, who uh, I've, I've, I'll probably each, almost each week quote, he has a very helpful breakdown where he looks at uh, kind of ancient Egyptian mythology and, and society and breaks down how they would have understood these plagues in their day. It says, the Egyptians regarded the frog as a symbol of divine power and a representation of fertility. One of the main goddesses of Egypt was Heket, who was depicted as a female, a human female with a frog's head. She was the spouse of the creator god, Kanum. He fashioned human bodies on his potter's wheel, and then Heket blew the breath of life into them and assisted as midwife at their births. Heket also, this is key, had the responsibility to control the multiplication of frogs in ancient Egypt by protecting the frog-eating crocodiles. So in other words, not only did she bring fertility, it was responsible for, for abundance, but also made sure that abundance didn't get out of control. 
but Yahweh overwhelmed Heket and caused her to be impotent in her task. She cannot repel or resist Yahweh's overpowering generation of frogs. It was the Hebrew God who finally or really bestowed fertility. He rapidly produced frogs so that would be a curse upon Egypt. We have a picture of, of Heket there on the far uh, right. This is from Heket's uh, Tinder profile. I'm just kidding. Uh, but beautiful face, right? When you're going through that. Um, there on the far right, you can see the head of a frog, kind of the belly, it's distended because there would have been the, uh, the idea of fertility. And, and again, the idea here is she was the god of abundance, the god of fertility, the god of plenty. Appease and follow this God and you will have abundance in your life. Now, at the same time, though, she would make sure that that abundance was something that also was a, was a state of blessedness, not an overwhelming reality. God would curse, and there would be no longer the ability to keep that abundance from becoming actually almost an irritant, filling all of life and overwhelming it, almost suffocating everything, with frogs multiplying, this symbol of abundance, almost suffocating out all life and joy and peace. Now, Pharaoh his heart is hardened. He, at first, he sees this symbol. He relents. He, at first, says, go out and, and pray for me in the desert, and they do, and, but then his heart is hardened. So God is going to bring the next two plagues. And there is a bit of a natural progression here. Some have argued that, uh, you know, some have kind of explained away the plagues as just natural progression. Really, the three plagues that do have a natural progression in terms of like one would lead to the other would lead to the other in natural progression, the three that really do have a natural progression to them are these three, that you would have frogs that would then be dead, and that would lead to gnats, which would lead to flies. But what we see is that these also, though, kind of uh, amplify the message here of this false god. This is why I'm doing them together. So the third plague, continuing in verse 16, I'm going to read down to probably around 23, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on the man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. And throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. There's a lot of debate about what's going on here. In fact, the Hebrew terms for gnats and flies... There are different ideas of exactly how to translate these. 
Uh, what's interesting, though, is most scholars agree that there is one big image that if you've ever watched uh, like the mummy movies or anything about like ancient Egypt, you'll, you'll, it'll be a, kind of one of the, the most pronounced symbols that you'll encounter, which was the, the symbol of the flying beetle. That there was this idea of some kind of a swarming entity, and that this entity was a god that they would actually wear in uh, amulets around their neck. I think we have a picture of, of one of them. Uh, that they would wear around their necks, and when they would wear these, it was because they were the god of the resurrection. Here we go. So they would wear these, and this was a flying beetle or a flying uh, like insect, and the idea was that it would bring about your resurrection. Curie goes on to say, he says, uh, here we go, directed, it, this god, this plague is directed against the Egyptian self-generated god of the resurrection, Kaperer, who was symbolized as the flying beetle. So how do these go together? So first you have that the god of abundance, it leads to this suffocating reality, almost life being filled with irritants as there's an overabundance. And then here we have God then plaguing this God of the resurrection, that, that through, that there's this ability to endlessly find new life. You put these together, what you have here is you have a false claim that you can find this resurrection, this new life, this new abundant thing that you're after, the life that you always wanted, and it will come through the God of abundance. But what God does, Yahweh, is He exposes that false God and multiplies those very symbols into an absolute chaos, into irritants, into this suffocating, overwhelming, anxiety-inducing, everything, everywhere filled with irritants. This is also undoing. There are Hebrew parallels here in the way it describes the land and, and whatnot and the, the things in the sky and it parallels the fifth day of creation where God separates the land and what flies above from what's on the land. In other words, this, this idea of the very core of creation, of the separation of the sky and earth, and all of a sudden, all these transcendent things we go after, and everything in earth is just overwhelmed and suffocating out daily life. Everything filled with it. So the false claim... Abundance at all times is what will satisfy us and give us that sense of, you could say, resurrection, new life. The consequence is that the pursuit of abundance actually fills our lives with irritants. That's actually suffocating. So let's talk about this. What does this look like in the modern world? So far, this is kind of theoretical. This modern God of abundance, so the second point. The modern God, as I said before, is not just mere abundance. It's not just merely having enough stuff, but the way that this comes about in our modern day is by having specifically an abundant choice or abundant options, to always have choices, that we have unending self-expression through our choices. See, this is key, because in the modern world, we tend, as modern people, to form our identities, our sense of who we are, our, our, our ability to express what we are, who we are, what we want to become, our aspirational identities. We express it through our desires and through our desires are expressed through the choices that we make. 
This is why in our day, one of the highest virtues that's held up again and again to the point that sometimes we're almost like, oh, is authenticity. Because authenticity is the idea that you live in concert with your desires, that you always are making choices that are in align with your deepest, truest desires and those define you. Choice, in other words, is key as a modern person in our day to understanding the self. It is through making choice that we express who we are. If we don't have choices, how do you have a sense of self? This is why often now anything that constrains choice, anything that conforms us or limits us is usually seen immediately as negative. It's, it's a modern intuition that we have for this reason. But there's a problem. There's a problem baked into this. It means that in order to have any kind of sense of self, you have to make continuously, unendingly, be making choices in order to have any sense of self. Now, where this becomes overwhelming is when you think about the number of choices that we make today. Uh, we've been doing this Captive No More workshop, and so we, we actually had, I, I created a two-page list, long list, of just a sampling of all the choices that you as a modern person will make. If you think about how simple life was 150 years ago, now, first, let me say this. I'm glad we are not still going to the restroom in outhouses when it's 20 below degrees in Missouri, right? 20 degrees below zero. I, I'm glad that we have electricity. I'm glad that we have central heating. I'm glad that we have modern agriculture and transportation and telecommunications and on and on and on and on. However, now because we define ourselves by these unending choices, it's actually an overwhelming reality. I think it's actually one of the real, I, I firmly believe it's actually why we are experiencing unprecedented levels of burnout in our day. So for instance, now I have a 10-year-old daughter. She will, make a, she will be presented with a choice that she will ponder and she will have to make, which is, you were born as a biological female. Will you continue that way? We now choose everything down to our sex and our gender. We also will make choices in terms of where will we live? Do I work remotely? Do I, if I work remotely, then where, what city do I live in then? If I can live in whatever city, I'm not limited by the company or the opportunities of the jobs or by my family of origin, so I can live wherever I want. But wherever I live, what does that say about me? And wherever I live, do I want to have unending experiences? Is that being able to go skiing? Is that to be able to go surfing? Is that to be able to just be left alone and be at peace? Do I want all the entities or experiences of a city? Family and marriage, do we live together before marriage? Do we, if we're married, do we stay together? Do we open our marriage? If you've been reading the Washington Post or the New York Times or on and on, every single major newspaper in the last three weeks has had a lead editorial on the option of open marriage. So even if you think you have decided on marriage and not divorcing, then now you will have an unending array of polyamorous options in your marriage. You must make a choice. See, we could talk about transportation. We could talk about products. We could talk about me just trying to pick a bag of popcorn. We could talk about you just trying to pick an item of clothing. And not only that, but now the store is open on your phone 24-7, not just 9 to 5. 
every single aspect of our life now is a choice. It used to be you want to go on vacation, here are your three or four options by the travel agent. Now you will spend days, if not weeks, pondering all of the various options. Always choices, always new experiences, always new fashion fads, always new things to engage with. This is why I shared a few weeks ago, this is captured the most in our culture by the phenomenon of the Net, uh, on Netflix of uh, they found that people were decrease, uh, leaving as subscribers. And, and when people asked, they got into the survey data of why it shocked them. They found they were losing subscribers because when they thought, Netflix said, you have endless options, right? I mean, one thing we can talk about choices, what to stream. And people would just flip and go toggle through, which one, which one, which one? I can choose whatever. And what they found was people were overwhelmed and burnt out by the number of choices. So you know what they created? The surprise me button. And they created the surprise me button because they realized people just were at this existential state of going, I'm done, I'm tapping out, just make the choice for me. we become captive to the endless need to make choices. In his uh, book, Digital Liturgies, I strongly recommend it. Samuel James, he's looking more at, uh, especially if you're younger and you're on a lot of uh, digitally, your ontology is almost more digital than it is physical. I would highly recommend This book where he says, we are and only are who we choose to be. This is the statement of modernity. This sounds extraordinarily liberating, but a close inspection of the emerging generation of adults who have lived their their entire lives under this online catechism of personal autonomy reveals two important conditions, confusion and exhaustion. Why? Because we're always toggling through choices, trying to define ourselves, but we find that we're never arriving. This is why Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, describes it well. He says, if we are our own and belong to ourselves, in other words, free to define ourselves, free to create ourselves through endless choice, then we are always only who we are, no more, no less. All we have are options and shifting opinions and an overwhelming feeling that whatever the standard might be, we aren't measuring up. Our work is inadequate. Our house is inadequate. Our tastes are inadequate. Our spouse is inadequate. Our body is inadequate. Our education is inadequate. Our cooking is inadequate, and so on and so on. Welcome to Instagram, right? (laughs) When I go on, that's what I feel. Uh, Society cannot fulfill its promise because it never really offered a clear goal. In this sense, the promise of society is more like a warning. You will keep searching, keep expressing, keep redefining, and keep striving for your autonomous personhood until you die. I've, where this really hit me was I started to see, uh, some of you have heard me use this phrase, I no longer think we live in a society where FOMO, the fear of missing out, is really the crippling anxiety of our day. I believe it is now FOBO, which is the fear of better options work with hundreds of college students, and the number one thing I've seen over the last few years is the crippling reality of for the first time in your life when you have been sold a bill of goods since you were in the womb that you will have unending choice for the rest of your lives. And most of you got to Mizzou because you had a three-page list of extracurricular activities that you're able to balance and do all the things. That's why you're successful in our society. And for the first time in your life, you are deciding to close options. One career, not all the others, potentially. 
Perhaps you met someone, one spouse. What about the other four billion of that gender? You're deciding for the first time to move to a city. In other words, what happens is you have to make this, you have this crisis point that comes crashing on you that no one's prepared you for, which is you all of a sudden have to make choices, but you have been so used to being told the way you express yourself is by always having better options that define you. This is an insanely crippling reality for us as modern people. The false claim of the God of abundance, because this leads to paralysis, it leads to anxiety. And I think while it's good, yes, like we're talking about all the issues of mental health and we need to, but I wonder how many of these things are underneath and are actually the things that are causing them. The false claim of the modern God of abundance is that abundance of choice at all times is what will satisfy us, but the consequence is that the pursuit of unending choice fills life with irritants. It's suffocating. It's overwhelming. It leads to burnout and exhaustion. And here's the other thing. If it means that you have unending choice and you can define yourself and give the life that you always wanted, here's the real crippling thing. If you don't actually achieve it, it means it's your fault. The sense of failure. is really devastating. They had frogs and they had gnats and they had flies and we have confusion, we have exhaustion, and we have burnout. So what do we do? What's the cure to this chaos? Uh, there's a countercultural solution. Uh, last week I said each week in these plays we're gonna consider how Christ essentially cures or addresses this plague, reverses the plague at times? How does he free us from these gods? Last week, we saw that with the Nile, blood of the Nile, it comes with blood of Christ, but it continues with the will of Christ, the will of Christ. Because Jesus, listen, get this, Jesus, who is God, God who in himself is abundant life, lived his life definitionally by conforming his will to the Father, not by having unending choices. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his will. What fed Jesus, what nourished him, what gave him life and gave him, gave him joy was doing his Father's will. And, and just think how absolutely countercultural that is to our day, that what if instead of freedom coming from having zero constraints or limitations in your life, that actual freedom comes by choosing the right constraints? Philippians 2, Paul describes Jesus this way. He says, have this mind among yourselves, you, church, us, we, we should have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus conformed himself to the Father's will. He didn't seek to please himself. He didn't leverage all of his rights and his privileges in order to get more and more and more and fill up all, have unending choice to please himself. What he did instead was he leveraged all of his rights and his privileges in that abundant life in order to give us life. 
So at the name of every, uh, the, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And, and that reason for that knee bowing is to learn that when we, when we conform ourselves to Christ and then we see Christ conforming himself to the Father, our knees bow because that's where true worship should lie. That's where the real abundance of life that we're looking for actually is found. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord in the, to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, and so now not only as in my presence, but also more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's saying there, not, he's not saying work into salvation. He's saying work out the salvation that you have. This isn't legalism. This isn't work your way into the kingdom. He says you have salvation, so work it out. Don't have this thing and then fail to have the freedom that it provides. And what Paul says here is the way you do that is you, you do that by bowing your knee to Jesus and conforming your life to him. See, Scripture does say there is something to be conformed to. That you are meant, there is a goal. Society may not give you a goal, but Scripture does give you a goal. And it says, there is a God of abundant life. Conform yourself to him. This is why Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in our lives, we shouldn't expect as modern people to just go with the flow and just expect unending choice and just to think everything that's a choice is actually a choice for me. Not everything that is presented as a choice is a choice for you if you are a follower of Christ because your life is not your own. So one of the ways that when we talked about in this workshop, I'll, I'll give you maybe, hopefully this is a practical tool. Again, not the silver bullet is Jesus, okay? Silver plated bullet are some practical things you could do. And, and one of the ways that I was thinking about this, because this is so pervasive, is just to have kind of tiers of what I would call tiers of choice constraint. Here's the thing. There are things in our lives that God has decided. Issues of morality, right? The big one we all agree on is don't murder, Okay, do I have a, I'm mad at this person, should I stab him in the face? No, okay? The choice has been made for you. Uh, God has decided. Also, issues of embodiment, sexuality, gender. Issues of the nature of marriage, which also ties into sexuality. On and on, we could talk about the list. What are the things that God has decided? God has, you could say God has created the, the second is, I have chosen, like I have committed. I, I now have committed to one wife. I do not have the choice to go find another wife. Because the way God has defined marriage, he has said, if you have committed, now you have covenanted, now you must be faithful. And here's the key. And those first two, and you could, you could think about other issues in that as far as what I have, what I have committed to. In there, the charge is to find contentment. The real joy is to find that in the midst of that, those boundaries and in the midst of those, you could say, constraints, those limitations on your freedom, you, only, you do have choices within that of how to act. But for instance, I have choices then of how to cultivate contentment in my marriage. There are a thousand choices I have, beautiful choices, life-giving choices, but the choice to leave, the choice to behave in certain ways towards her, aren't choices. Then we have the third and fourth tier. I must choose and I can choose. 
You must choose, right? You have to choose where you're going to live. You have to choose where, uh, what your career is going to be. Uh, you have to choose uh, about uh, many, many things in life. But what are those things you, you must choose? And, and then the, sec- the last tier is what, what can I choose? Like, for instance, maybe I don't have to choose. I don't have to un- unending, like every single night, think, where do I eat out tonight? Every single night, where do I, what experiences do I have? Like, are there things that are just, oh, and these are a lot of where the irritants come. Are there things that you're saying, I can choose, but I really don't have to. I don't even have to consider them. And you limit them. And in those, in those, the third and fourth tier, we cultivate community around us to help us discern and have wisdom as we process them. But also we set limitations. We set constraints. So we're not overwhelmed by just tons of choices. Now, again, this isn't a sober bullet. This, for all of us, some of those things that fall in those different categories on the end there are going to be different. But here's some of the examples from the workshop, and I'll end with this. It says, some of them, they wrote down one, establishing patterns of spiritual disciplines. Like, in my life, how I get up in the day and throughout my day, are there habits of spiritual disciplines? And I think habits are important, but they're not going to be everything when our habitat is so overwhelming. But we do need baseline habits. That conform, like if I've chosen to follow Christ, then now that means that I have to have habits in my life of following him. But in other words, other ones were leaning into my marriage. These are just ones from the workshop that some of you had written down, uh, committing to chastity outside of marriage. That might mean deleting certain apps because they give an unending choice to not do that. One person put one, what, is it one or two vacations a year? And that's it. That's actually a wise one. <laughs> Limits on media, uh, financial constraints and responsibility, like developing a budget, meal plans, uh, number of times a week that we eat out, uh, committing to my local community by investing. They, they said committing, I'm here, I need to commit locally in some ways of coaching or mentoring others who have need. Uh, establishing sacred times, like no phones at dinner. What if your dinner table became a sacred place where you said, you know what, here there, there's a limitation of no outside. If you're not physically embodied here, then there's no outside, like phones, TV, no youth sports on Sundays, they wrote. Becoming a member in my local church, being present with my small group and on Sundays. I read these. What would be the things for you where Christ is saying commit? Then one fundamental choice of our life is to follow Christ. And from there, then there, are, there is a bevy of freedom, but then there also are going to be, in our day, we need to lean in as well into the constraints that come. Freedom is not found in avoiding constraints, but in choosing the right ones. And the most important choice that you can make is choosing to constrain yourself, to conform yourself to the God of abundant life. Constrain your will to his. Conform your will to his. You know, he, he conformed his will to the Father's will. And he chose you and me. Our response? Well, the choice is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would show us the, the joy of wherever in our lives. And for, Lord, I just I pray that for each of us there'd be spirit, you would reveal one area. One area where we take joy in realizing that there's, there's an area that we can cultivate with contentness, contentedness, and you've given us so many options of, of joy and life within that. Lord, give us wisdom. 
And then also, Lord, in the areas where you're calling us to constrain or limit ourselves, to possibly eliminate things, or just to make a choice and stick to it and commit to it. Lord, whatever those things might be, Lord, would it just give a sense of freedom? Would you define us? Would our life in you define us? Lord, would you give us grace for this in our day? These topics are not easy. There are so many complexities to these. But at the end of the day, Lord, still that call to be conformed to you, would we keep that as our North Star? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.